Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone, and welcome into the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes. On today's episode, the Yuuzhan Vong continue to overrun the planets in the Outer Rim, and they're about to turn their sights to the center of the galaxy. But the Jedi are about to discover something that could stop the Vong in their tracks. We'll find out what that secret is today in Dark Tide 2, Ruin, by Michael A. Stackpole the conclusion of the Dark Tide duology. And talking about the book with me today is Matt Thacker, one of the hosts of the Davos Fingers podcast. Thank you for coming on the show today, Matt. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Uh, this is my favorite Star Wars podcast, and it's a thrill for me to be on it with you. Now, longtime listeners of the Star Wars Legends Lounge will remember that Matt was here a little over a year ago for my first listener question show, and that went pretty great. So, of course, I had to ask him back on to talk about the New Jedi Order. Now, you read the series before, haven't you, Matt? I have, but it's been many moons, so much so that as I'm reading it now, there is a lot that feels new to me, but uh, I'm excited to re-explore it. And thanks again for joining me to talk about today's book. We'll get to that in just a few minutes, but first, it's listener question time. We've got three questions today. The first comes from Preston Coy. Preston says, hello, I have two questions. First, what is the population of Rancors and what is their homeworld? Second, do you think we could be introduced to new lightsaber colors in canon, such as teal, brown, etc.? Thank you for the great podcast. Well, thank you for the email, Preston. Rancors are native to the planet Dothamir. We don't know their exact population, but they're numerous enough that some of them were semi-domesticated by the Dothamiri witches, and that's in both legends and canon. According to Wikipedia, there's also a subspecies of rancors called jungle rancors that are a little smaller and have a shell. They can be found on the planet Felucia. As to your second question, it looks like we may get another lightsaber color in the live-action Ahsoka show. In the teaser for that show, we see two lightsabers that definitely have an orange tint to them. And personally, I would like to see more lightsaber colors come into canon. How about you, Matt? What do you want to see when it comes to lightsaber colors? Oh, I'm all about the colors. Let's paint with all the colors of the wind. Let's taste the rainbow. I, any, any and all lightsaber colors are welcome in my world. It's been, uh, I think it was in The Mandalorian, right? We saw Ahsoka with her whiter lightsaber blades are kind of silvery. Um, of course, Ray with her yellow. So I feel like we're starting to see a few more colors come in, but I'm all about moving on beyond the, the blue, the green and the, and the red. 
I want to see a lot more colors too. Well, thank you for the email, Preston. Today's second email comes from Jacob, who says, Hello, my name is Jacob, and I'm nine years old. Thank you for the show. I didn't know much about Star Wars Legends before your show, but it has really helped me to like it. My question is, what are the main parts of a lightsaber hilt in Legends? Well, thank you very much for the email, Jacob, and thank you for the very kind words. I'm really happy you're enjoying the Legends stories, and I hope that continues. Matt, let's help Jacob out a little bit. What are the parts of a lightsaber hilt? Well, Jacob, let me tell you that I've got a 10-year-old, and he's never asked about what parts make up a lightsaber hilt, so I think that's pretty cool that uh, we can talk with you about it. According to the official page on StarWars.com, a lightsaber hilt consists of a crystal, a power cell, a focusing ring, a blade emitter, and then other various controls. The power cell provides the power for the blade. Uh, the focusing ring works with the power cell and the crystal to produce the blade. And the blade emitter is where the blade shoots out of. Finally, a Jedi, you know, they can put different controls on the hilt to turn the lightsaber on and off or to change its length. Um, the only difference in lightsaber hilts between canon and legends is the crystal. In canon, the Jedi use kyber crystals in their lightsabers. In legends, the Jedi can use different kinds of crystals. Uh, it's the reason why there are more lightsaber colors in legends than there are in canon, like we said before, to this point. Thank you very much again for the email, Jacob. And Jacob, if you have any questions about which legend stories you might want to try out, send me an email anytime. I can give you some suggestions. Today's third email comes from Charlie, who says, Yoda tells Luke that he will be the last Jedi, even though we have characters like Ahsoka Tano, Ezra Bridger, and others who survived the Purge. Is there a canon or legends explanation for this? Or is this just because George Lucas didn't yet plan the prequels and didn't think everything through? Well, Charlie, I think, honestly, you hit the nail right on the head. At the time of the original trilogy, Luke was the last Jedi. I doubt that Ahsoka Tano or Ezra Bridger or anyone else were even ideas back then. But, as I like to do on this show, let's think a little differently. If we were to assume that George Lucas had the entire saga planned out in the late 70s, then whether Luke was the last Jedi at that time of Yoda's death could depend on your point of view. Ahsoka didn't consider herself to be a Jedi because she had left the Order. Ezra Bridger was lost in the Unknown Regions, and others like Grogu or Gunji or Quinlan Voss were either missing or they were in hiding. Maybe Yoda didn't mean that Luke was literally the last Jedi, but that he was the only Jedi left to defeat Darth Vader and the Emperor. Matt, you have any thoughts on uh, Charlie's question? I agree with you and with some of the, the points that Charlie made as well. Um, you know, if we're talking technicalities here, as you mentioned, Ahsoka left the Jedi Order and Ezra, who was out in the Unknown Regions Anyway, was trained by Kanan Jarrus, who I hate to say it, but he technically wasn't granted the title of Jedi Knight either, right? He was a Padawan uh, at the time of Order 66. Now, I don't even think that Yoda would care much about those technicalities at this point, but 
there they are, if we're being real technical. Um, I also don't know if we have any proof that Jedi, even one as powerful as Yoda, has an all-access pass across the universe to know about every single Jedi who is still alive. Should we expect him to know? I don't know if we should. Uh, there are certainly instances where Jedi can sense other Jedi, especially with those with whom they have a strong bond. But to know of every single Jedi in the universe, I kind of doubt it. So I wonder if Yoda just maybe didn't know about some of these other ones. You know, he couldn't sense them, maybe. And he doesn't always get things right. Remember the whole Sith Lord living under his nose for years and years, you know? A huge swing and a miss by Yoda there. Uh, I'm kidding. Hindsight is kind of 2020. It's hard to judge him. But um, it may just be that Yoda simply didn't know. Thank you for the email, Charlie. Now, listener, if you have a question or comment for the show, like Preston, Jacob, or Charlie, send me an email at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send me a tweet at legendslounge1. And if you'd like to get your voice on the show, feel free to record an audio question and email it in. Just please help me out and record it in MP3 or MP4 audio format. All right, Matt. Dark Tide 2, Ruin by Michael A. Stackpole. Are you ready? Red 2 standing by. Grab yourself a drink and let's head in to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. To begin, the Yuzhan Vong continue their push through the Outer Rim, led by Commander Shadeo Shai, fulfilling the prophecy of the Vong priests that this galaxy will be their new home. A few things about Shadeo Shai. First, his grandfather, Monge Shai, was part of the first advance team to enter the galaxy 50 years ago and died on the planet Bimiel. Second, Shadeo Shai wants his grandfather's body back, and he vows to kill the man who took it one of the heretical Jedi, specifically Corrin Horn. And finally, this guy, Shadow Shai, he loves pain. He embraces it. He finds salvation in it. And he's anxious to inflict this truth upon the inhabitants of the galaxy. Meanwhile, Leia Organa Solo, Admiral Trace Crefay, and General Wedge Antilles are doing all they can to learn about the Yuzhan Vong and to stop their advance through the Outer Rim. But they find themselves blocked by the New Republic government and Chief of State Borsk Felia. It's in one of these meetings that two missions are revealed. Leia will go to Bastion to enlist the help of the Imperial Remnant, led by Jilad Pelion, and Senator Elagos Akla, the loyal Kamasi friend of Leia, tasks himself with going as an emissary to Shadal Shai to attempt negotiations. The Kaamasi are pacifists, and Elagos vows to do everything he can to halt the Vong invasion and stop a full-scale war before it starts. On Yavin 4, Luke Skywalker and his still-ailing wife Mara Jade meet with the Jedi to address the growing division in the Order. One side, led by Kip Duran, believes the only way to fight the violence of the Vong is with a concerted, violent offensive of their own. Luke, along with Mara, Corrin, and others, advocate for a more thoughtful approach that does not skirt so close to the dark side. Luke announces that the New Republic government, whatever side they pick, will not sanction the Jedi's participation in military action. 
He says their primary task will be to protect refugees from the Vong conquered worlds as they travel coreward, much to the dismay of Kip's faction. However, Luke does announce that Corrin has been called back into military service. Acting as a colonel in the New Republic military, Corrin and a squad of Nogri will infiltrate the Vong-controlled world of Garki to try to learn more about their motivations, strength, and resources. Luke assigns Jedi Ganner Rizod and Jason Solo to go with Corrin and act as civilian observers. On the capital of the Imperial Remnant, the planet Bastion, Leia and Danny Kui meet with Grand Admiral Pelion and a council of moths. Many in the Imperials are wary of the New Republic baiting them into a trap. But Pelion recognizes the threat the Yuzhan Vong poses. He chastises the Imperials, who advise staying out of the fight, hoping to take advantage of the coming war and to take back some of the territory that they lost. But Pelion refuses, asking the Moffs what they think will happen to them if the Vong destroys the New Republic. The Vong will wipe the Imperial Remnant off the galactic map. Pelion tells Leia the Imperial military will defend the Remnant first, but he commits to helping the New Republic as they are able. Luke, Mara, and Anakin discover that Deshara Kor, a Twi'lek Jedi who follows Kip Duron, has disappeared. Anakin uncovers evidence that she accessed information on superweapons the Death Star, the Sun Crusher, the Eye of Palpatine, the Darksaber, and even more. Enlisting the help of Chalco, a petty information broker, the three Jedi rush off to stop Deshara Kor. She makes it to the Vortex, even meeting with former Imperial weapons designer Kui Zooks, the woman who helped design the Death Star and the Sun Crusher, before Luke and company track her down to Garos Four. There, they split up. Anakin is captured by Deshara Kor, but he's rescued by Chalco. The incident awakens Deshara Kor to her sense of duty to the Jedi and her commitment to following Luke. Meanwhile, Elagos Akla arrives at Dubrillian, where the Vong forces are staged and requests to meet with Shadal Shai. <coughs> the Yuzhan Vong commander is intrigued and invites the Ka'amasi onto his command ship, the Legacy of Torment. The two begin to teach, learn, and understand each other better. But to fully understand the Yuzhan Vong, Shadal Shai tells Elagos he must fully commit to one of their most sacred rituals. Elagos agrees, telling the commander he'll do whatever is necessary to stop the war. Come then, Shadal Shai says. Allow me to introduce you to the embrace of pain. Ooh. Well, Corrin and his team infiltrate Garki and meet up with a local resistance force. They learn that the Vong are using coral implants to create an army of human slaves. Corrin's team sets out to obtain samples of the Vong biotech, which they can hopefully analyze to find an inoculation. They're discovered, however, and a battle ensues. The Vong surround Corrin's group, trapping them in the Athorian section of a xenobotanical garden. Escape looks impossible for our heroes, when suddenly the Vondun crab armor the Vong are wearing begins to swell, crushing the warriors inside. Strange, Corrin thinks, but unbelievably lucky. 
The armor must have had a severe allergic reaction to the pollen from Athorian Baffor trees in the garden. Corin has his squad take samples of the pollen and armor, and then orders the garden burned to hide the evidence from the Vong. Admiral Creefray arrives at Garki in the Rolroost to extract Corin's strike team. He finds a Yuzhan Vong battle group orbiting the planet. Creefray orders Rogue Squadron to protect the strike team's shuttle, while the Rolroost tries to hold off the larger Vong warships. The rogues perfected their tactics of overwhelming the coral skipper's Dovin basals using low-energy laser blasts and detonating their proton torpedoes early before taking kill shots. But the battle looks bleak. The sheer number of enemy forces is too much. Until, out of nowhere, the Empire arrives. Grand Admiral Pelion and an Imperial battle group jump to the rescue of the New Republic forces. The rogues are saved by a squadron of expert starfighters who claim to be part of a Chiss House phalanx loaned to the Empire by General Baron Suntir Fell and led by his son, a human, Jagged Fell. The Imperials escort the rogues and Corrin's shuttle back to the Rolroost and cover their escape. In the weeks following the battle above Garki, New Republic and Imperial Remnant leadership gather at Ithor to plan its defense, knowing it's only a matter of time before the Yuzhan Vong learn about the Baffor trees and effect the pollen has on Vong biotechnology. However, the Ithorians hold a high respect for nature, and they refuse to synthesize a natural botanical into a weapon used for harm. Stepping foot on Ithor is not even allowed unless one is blessed by Ithorian priests and agrees to observe certain restrictions. So, while New Republic, Imperial, and Athorian leaders meet on the floating Athorian headship to Fonda Bay, the Jedi meet in one of its groves. There, they are instructed by Athorian priest Ralal Turan on what they must do to spiritually prepare to step foot on Ithor, a ceremony that includes each Jedi publicly renouncing that which they feel holds them back. Noticeable is Deshara Kor penitent after her renegade mission and subsequent capture by Anakin, who renounces hatred. Ganner Rizod, left humbled at Garki with a deep, hideous scar now running his face, renounces pride. Luke, responsibility. Corin, fear. Anakin, self-assuredness. And Jason, the need to know what will happen in the future. Back on the legacy of Torment, Dane Leanne, Shadow Shai's second-in-command, reports his findings about the Ithorian Baffor trees and the pollen. Shai commands Lian to plan an attack on Ithor to commence in one month, but to do it in a way that does not destroy the planet. Lian agrees and slinks away to his cabin, where he pulls out a hidden villop and reports all that has occurred to a yet unnamed master, someone much higher than Shadal Shai in the chain of command. The master mocks Shai's plan as weak, but tells Lian to proceed as ordered, making Shadal Shai to look like a fool. Lian tells the master he will obey and closes the villop. Lian smiles, knowing that he is one step closer to the high position that he believes should be his. Shadow Shai has set other plans in motion, sending a gift to the New Republic, specifically to Corrin Horn, 
Elegus Akla's shuttle, and within the bones of Elegos himself. With the ornately adorned and arranged bones is a villip of Shadao Shai. Through the villip, Shadao reveals that he's a descendant of Monge Shai, whose remains were found on Bimiel, and he is kin of the two warriors Corin later killed. He confesses that it was vengeance for these acts that led Shadao Shai to kill Elagos with his own two hands, and he demands that Monge Shai's remains be returned to him when their forces meet over Ithor. Corin, horrified, starts to feel for himself the itch of vengeance. While at Tafanda Bay, Luke, Pelion, and Crufrey prepare for the Vong attack. They've done better than expected evacuating the planet, but they still need more time. Corrin then comes up with a plan. Should Al Shai wants him just as much as he wants his grandfather's remains? And Corrin says they can use that to their advantage. He says he'll challenge Shadal Shai to a duel. If Shai wins, he gets the bones of his kin back. If Corrin wins, the attack on Ithar is called off. Corrin says he'll propose the duel to happen in two weeks, which should give Crefrey and Pelion time to evacuate the rest of the planet. Luke is wary of the plan, telling Corrin he is skirting dangerously close to the dark side. But reluctantly, the three leaders agree. Yeah, and the battle is joined at Ithor, and amidst the mounting New Republic casualties are two notables. Jaina's friend and wingmate, Annie Capstan, is killed in a dogfight above the planet. And Deshara Kor succumbs to the venom from a Yuzhan Vong ampistaff while fighting Vong warriors and their <clears throat> reptoid Chazrak soldiers on the Tafanda Bay alongside Anakin. But our heroes find success as well. Yuzhan Vong forces led by Shadao Shai find what appears to be a well-fortified structure on Ithor defended by droids. Fueled by their hatred of all things autonomic, the Vong forces go berserk, only to quickly discover it's a trap. It's a trap. Shadao Shai is barely able to escape before the building explodes, killing dozens of Vong warriors. Following the blast, Shadao Shai's communication villip transforms into the face of Corin Horn. Corin challenges Shadao Shai to the aforementioned duel. The Yuzhan Vong commander agrees to a week-long truce in order to prepare. And so for now, the fighting's over. One week later, Corin, with Luke as his second, and Shadao Shai, with Dane Lan as his second, meet on the planet's surface. The fighters appear equally matched at first, and the battle is fierce. But without the ability to sense Shadao Shai in the Force, Corrin knows it's only a matter of time before he falls to the younger, stronger alien. Corrin begins to tire, and Shadao Shai presses his advantage. He parries a lightsaber slice and stabs Corrin in the gut with his amphistaff. Corrin falls at the Vong commander's feet. Shadao Shai raises his amphistaff to deliver the final blow when Corrin turns off his lightsaber and lunges forward inside the amphistaff strike. Caught off balance, Shadao Shai stumbles forward a step as Corrin brings the hilt of his lightsaber to meet the Vong's stomach. Corrin ignites his saber and the silver blade emerges from out Shadao Shai's back. 
the Vaughn Commander dies, ending the duel. Luke quickly pulls Corrin out from under Shadow Shai's body, while Dane Leanne flees back to his ship to take command of the fleet. But Leanne does not abide by the terms of the duel, and releases a toxic slime all over Ithor, killing all life on the planet. Nothing survives. Ithor is dead. Leanne reports his victory to his master, War Master Savong Law, who congratulates him and affirms his command of Shadal Shai's fleet. But his command is short-lived, as the legacy of Torment is caught by a New Republic interdictor cruiser, which overwhelms the Torment's Dovin Basals. With the Torment unable to escape, the New Republic and Imperial fleet fire at will, destroying the Torment in a glorious blaze. But the success is bittersweet, as the loss of Ithor erases any joy of victory. The story ends a week later. Corrin, fresh out of Bacta treatments, is devastated by the news of Ithor, and learns Borskphalia is blaming him for the planet's destruction. If Luke repudiates Corrin, distancing the Jedi Order from him, they could escape further recrimination and could continue in their efforts to help the galaxy. Horn can shoulder the burden, even feeling as if he partially deserves it, admitting how closely he flirted with the dark side during his duel with Shadow Shai. It takes some convincing, but eventually Luke agrees. Jason, however, does not. Time for a break. When we return, Matt and I will talk more about Dark Tide 2 Ruin, the second book in the Dark Tide duology. I'm Aaron Motes. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, where we celebrate the books from Star Wars Legends. But let me take a moment and recommend a book from Star Wars canon. Aftermath, Life Debt, continues the story of Nora Wexley's group, chasing Imperial Admiral Ray Sloan, while Han Solo vows to liberate Chewbacca's home world. Han enlists Nora, her son Snap, Jom, Jap, and Sinjir for help. Can our heroes fight off the Empire and free Kashyyyk? Find out in Aftermath, Life Debt by Chuck Wendig, the second book in the Aftermath trilogy. Welcome back to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes, and today, Matt and I are wrapping up the Dark Tide duology with Dark Tide 2, Ruin by Michael A. Stackpole, the third book in the New Jedi Order series. Things are starting to get serious now, Matt. Uh, We've now had, what, four planets completely destroyed? Wow, yeah. Either by just the Vong or the fighting between the New Republic and the Vong. Mm -hmm. It's starting to really get hairy 
for the New Republic because you had Helska IV, you had Dubrillion, you had Serpendal. Those were either sparsely populated planets or, in the case of Helska IV, not even populated at all. Right. Now, you've started moving from the outer rim to the edges of the mid-rim, and you've taken out Ithor. This is an important planet. Now, things are really starting to get serious for the New Republic. And it's not even a matter of let's take over the planet just so we can control it and use it as a base of operations for moving more coreward. This is just like, we're destroying this planet just to destroy it. This is not just some, you know, conquest or use the planet for our own needs or whatever. This is to kill just to kill. And so those stakes go up even more for, you know, that Vong threat. One thing we didn't go over in this book during our summary. Serpendal, the planet that was destroyed back in Vector Prime, where Chewbacca saved Anakin's life. The rogues perform a reconnaissance mission to Serpendal, and they discover something. Inside of all that destruction, the Vong have started to build something. We don't know exactly what yet, but they're building something big. So while they can't do that now with Ithor, they are doing something to some of these planets that they have taken over. Yeah, so it's it's not, you're totally right. So it's not even a matter of just saving lives. That's already reason enough. Um, and now we have this interesting situation where we're transferring refugees from all these different planets to even more different planets, and it's becoming a logistical issue too. But it's actually becoming, there's more pressure on them, on the New Republic to act now to stop whatever is being built. Because the Yuzhan Vong are already strong enough. And if they're adding to those forces and adding to that power, then we've got an even more dire situation. And that's considering the fact that maybe a quarter to a third of the Vong forces are here right now. I mean, we had the Praetorate Vong in the first book. Yeah. That was basically almost like a reconnaissance mission right. in itself. You have Shadal Shai's forces. That's basically just the vanguard. Mm -hmm. The main force of the Yuzhan Vong invasion hasn't even gotten to the galaxy yet. The New Republic and the Imperial Remnant, they really don't know what is about to happen. They really don't. And that makes us as readers even more intrigued and more scared. And it makes you wonder, what can they do? We're barely, The New Republic is barely holding on right now against a force that's just a small taste of what's really out there. So Matt, you said at the beginning of the show, you have read these books before, but it's been quite a while. <laughs> so... It's almost like reading it all over again. It really is, yeah. What did you like about this book, and were there any things in this book that didn't work for you? Um, with Stackpole, I'm a big fan of the X-Wing books. You know this, Aaron. Um, and that, that was kind of Stackpole's entrance into the Star Wars universe. So I love him, and I love the pacing with which he writes. Uh, when I finished the book, I was seriously surprised. I was reading it on an e-reader, so I didn't have the, the pages to actually tell me I was almost done with the book. And I was surprised when I finished. I was like, already it's done? Oh, it was such a fast read for me. Um, and so, so well paced. I loved all of the different action sequences that we have. Um, 
on a smaller note, one of the things I really liked about this book was the relationship uh, between the Imperial Remnant and the New Republic. I thought it worked rather well. I, I might give some uh, caveats to that and the stuff I didn't love. But for the most part, I really liked it. And I really liked the relationship we saw develop between Crefay and, and Pelion. Um, just a warm, mutual respect for each other that I thought worked really well. So I loved seeing all of these different sides coming together in, in Dark Tide and in the New Jedi Order uh, as a whole. And those are some of the things I really liked. What about you? I enjoy Stackpole's writing for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe my favorite part is similar to yours. It's his pacing. He's one of my favorite when it comes to the battle scenes because whether it's a space battle, whether it's a ground battle, things happen quickly and he writes it quickly. He doesn't sit there and take an entire page to write something that occurs in only five or 10 seconds. <laughs> if it happens quickly, it's a sentence. And then all of a sudden you're on to the next thing. Good point. That's what I like about Stackpole's writing. If I had a criticism, I had mentioned on one of the previous episodes of the show, one of the things about the Vong is their worship of pain and death. This is really the first book where we start to see that Mm -hmm. in the scenes specifically between Shadal Shai and Elagos Akla. Shadal Shai puts Elagos through basically torture for no other reason than to torture him. I know it's under the auspices of teaching Elagos Mm -hmm. about the Yuzhan Vong, but it really isn't. It's just to torture Elagos, basically to see what the Ka'amase can put up with before he breaks. Yeah. Pacifism is never a fair fight, right? And I suppose it's not meant to be. But <laughs> uh, yeah, and some of those scenes do get fairly graphic, for sure. Particularly the embrace of pain scenes, mm-hmm. where they talk about shoulders popping out of sockets, ligaments stretching to their breaking, to their breaking point. point. Yeah, that would be one thing that I think if I could go back to the meetings between all these authors in the late 90s when they came up with the Yuzhan Vong, I would say maybe let's just make these scenes not as graphic as graphic as as you are. So it wasn't so much the idea behind kind of their sadistic nature, but more the the graphic way that it's represented on page. For me, yes. Okay. I would. That's fair. I kind of agree at times with folks that don't think this is a tone that they like in the Star Wars universe. That's fair. Yeah, it's it's very different. I mean, we've had scenes of torture in the Star Wars universe before, you know, Han Solo and the Empire Strikes Back and Princess Leia and A New Hope, but it's all very, you know, the door closes on the camera before the rough stuff it's starts. It's very implied. Yeah. It's implied torture. Right. Um, in Andor, you did have the one scene where the technician put the headphones on Bix Colleen. That's true. Mm-hmm. And she starts screaming, but you don't hear as the audience member, 
what she is hearing. Yeah, that's true. Honestly, the most graphic scene of torture that's coming to mind right now from on screen is when 3PO and R2 get taken to the lower levels of Jabba's palace oh, and you see the droid you see the droid torture room. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yeah. Yeah, you see the one droid stretched out getting his limbs torn off and you see the box droid getting his feet uh, uh heated up. Yeah, that's true. Um that's fair. That's very fair. For me, one thing that one criticism that I might have that doesn't land for me is a lot of Stackpole's dialogue. I think Stackpole is a great character builder, and I think he does a really good job of focusing on on a lot of different characters. Um, and he does it in a very fair way for the most part. Corrin Horn's his little superhero, but we'll maybe talk more about that later. Um, but the dialogue, the back and forth between two characters feels just like it's just a vehicle for saying what Corin needs to say to move the story along. So he puts it in very, to me, it comes off as very dry dialogue in many instances of this is said, now this is said, now this is said, now this is said, and now the story's moved forward and we can move on with another action sequence. So that's one thing that doesn't land super well for me with him. Uh, but for the most part, his character building and the stories that he tells are just fantastic. You mentioned the dialogue. One of the criticisms, obviously, of the prequel films is the dialogue, mm -hmm. specifically the romantic dialogue between Padme and Anakin. Mm -hmm. I noted two places in this book, and stupid old me, I wish I had the book in front of me so I could look them back up again and read it actually what it was. But there's two spots where Luke and Mara mm -hmm. are talking to each other. Mm -hmm. And Mara uses the phrase husband mine like, <laughs> various times i'm like one no one says that in a conversation and two if you take these paragraphs yes the padme anakin dialogue may have been a bit stilted this is right up there right with up anyone there. who wants to criticize right lucas for there. his romantic dialogue yeah there's some stuff the luke and mara stuff corin and mirax there's a couple scenes too where you're just like oh come on no one says that to their significant other. <laughs> totally agree, my friend. Totally agree. <laughs> um, you asked about things that, that didn't quite work for me, and so that was one of them. And the other big thing for me just stems from the fact that originally this was this this duology was meant to be three books, right? And um Stackpole ended up, well, he disagreed with, to make a long story short, he disagreed with some of the direction that the publisher wanted to go. And so he ended up just doing it in two books. And I feel like you can kind of sense that throughout the book. There's a lot of quick turnarounds. And a couple of the quick turnarounds that didn't work for, for me were Deshara Kors and Ganner Rysodes. It was just like they had an experience, you know, Deshara Kor was captured. And then the next time we see her, she's completely back on Luke's side, isn't feeling anything of what she felt before. Ganner Rysodes burns a little more slowly. He has that really nice uh, monologue to Jason uh, after he gets his scar on his, or after he gets his cut on his face. Um, but for, for both of them, they were both so far away in the other camp, kind of on Kip Duran's faction. 
And I'm a reader who loves to explore the heart in conflict with itself. I almost said human heart in conflict with itself, but, but Deshara Court mm. isn't a human. Um, so the heart in conflict with itself. I would have liked to see both characters struggle a bit more or, or weighing ethical implications or feeling some of that regret and working through those decisions a little bit more than we did. And some of the other things moved a little quickly too, but those were ones that stuck out to me. I agree with you to a point. I Ganner's works for me, but I completely agree with you with Deshara Kors mm -hmm. because after she's apprehended, there's like one notation in one of the chapters where Anakin is your POV that just says that Luke and Deshara Kors have been meeting together. Yeah. It's like one sentence. Mm -hmm. And then later, Anakin's speaking with her and she basically tells him, Yes, I met with your uncle. Master Skywalker has taken me back. He has shown me the error of my ways. I'm all for Luke's way of envisioning what the Jedi Order is to do. Yeah. That is one of the scenes that I think you need to see <laughs> in this book. And that I wonder if we would have that... if we'd had a third book. Sure, maybe we would have. But that one to me, almost feels like Elaine Bennis from Seinfeld. They just yada yada over the best part. <laughs> Good point. Yep, yep. Um, even with uh, some of the Imperial Remnant and New Republic stuff, I would have loved to, to have seen opposition from the old school New Republic leaders, you know, saying, we're going to work with the Imperial Remnant. These are the people that created the Death Star. And you do get a little bit of that, but I would have loved to see a little more back and forth there. I would have loved to see a little more, you know, you just see the New Republic is now bad. New Republic leadership is bad, led by Borsk Falia. And maybe I'd like to see a little Garmbel Iblis or some of these guys that are challenging Borsk a little bit from the political perspective or the New Republic leadership perspective. Um, I think we could have gotten those with another book. And because Stackpole had to wrap up a lot of this stuff, he kind of glazed over some of it. So, I do think we get some of that going forward, at least. Maybe not in this book, but in we future. do get more of the conflict between the leadership of the New Republic and the Imperial Remnant going forward. Good point. Yeah, we still have, uh, what, 16 more books left in this series? we got plenty of time. Yeah, we've got, we've got quite a journey. <laughs> You mentioned the scene earlier between Gana Rasod and Jason Solo after they were part of Korin's strike team that infiltrated Garki. There was a battle with some of the Yuzhan Vong. Ganner gets his face sliced open along the left side. It goes all the way from the top of his forehead down to his chin. As they're escaping the planet, Jason goes to give Ganner a painkiller. Ganner refuses until he cauterizes his wound. Mm -hmm. Then he accepts the painkiller. What do you think of that scene? And do you think that scene will have any effect on Jason as we go forward? I thought it was a powerful scene. I really liked it. I did criticize a little bit of Ganner's turnaround of it being so quick, but I thought that scene was really powerful. 
um, it reminded me of a you listening to Davos Fingers. You know, I bring a lot of song lyrics into into stuff because I'm always listening to music. Uh, it brought to mind two lyrics for me, actually, just two quick liners. One from The Hold Steady, one of my favorite bands, who said, "You want the scars, but you don't want the war." Um, and that kind of made me think of Ganner a little bit in the sense of he wanted that glory. He wanted something to be able to tell a story about of him conquering this great warrior. But the battle, oof, that ended up not being great for him. And then a line from a Dave Matthews band song. Uh, the song's called Beach Ball. And Dave says, give me scars to bring me grace. And, you know, learn, in other words, learning from the things that scar us a little bit or, or the tough situations we go through. And I love that from Ganner. Um, a powerful paragraph in in that whole sequence was not what he said, but what happened. Um, he said he after he'd gotten his his wound all cauterized by the Nogri. I can't remember the Nogri's name. It says uh, he accepted a dressing soaked in disinfectant and swabbed it over the side of his face, clearing up the blood. Most of the red went away, save the angry line from forehead to jaw. The flesh on the line was clearly tender, but Ganner washed it thoroughly nonetheless. Symbolizing Ganner's, you know, washing away the, that old way of thinking and committing to a new path and accepting the, the pain or discomfort that comes along with that. I imagine that really stung rubbing that disinfectant on that fl- fresh wound, but it was a way of cleansing himself um, and setting himself on a new course. Uh, he said at the end, I didn't want it to be easier, Jason. I wanted it to be memorable. Um, so Jason has a lot to learn from that. Of he's Jason's a thinker. He's very analytical. He likes to think through his positions. He's very philosophical. And what he's learning here from Ganner is that it's not going to be easy. You can't just think your way through some of these things. Um, to get the scars, you're going to have to fight the war. To, to learn grace, you're going to have to maybe get some scars too, as Dave Matthews would put it. Um, so I think he's going to learn a lot about having to get in there and do some of that rough stuff in order to achieve the outcome that you desire, which for Jason is very much harmony and peace and uh, lack of violence. Um, so that's what I pulled from it. What do you think? Well, at the beginning of the Yuzhan Vong invasion. Amongst the Jedi, there was basically four schools of thought. You had the school represented by Kip Duran and his followers that in order to defend the galaxy, we have to go on the offensive against the Vong. Mm -hmm. You had Luke's school of thought that that's not what a Jedi does. Yes, I understand that's the way I was trained. But I found another way in the end to defeat Vader and Palpatine. I found that through compassion, I could defeat evil. Yeah. So you have those two schools of thought in conflict. Then you had Anakin, who basically was using the force as a tool. Now, at this point, Anakin is the one that has sort of changed his point of view. He's now come over to Luke's side. The fourth was Jason's. And you said he is the most introspective. He's the most intellectual. 
He's the one that thinks the deepest. He's continually looking for the Jedi to be something more, but he can't define what that something more is. I think the scene between him and Ganner might start showing him that something more just might be looking outside of yourself. Ganner thought one way. Luke teamed Ganner up with Corrin several times so that Ganner could learn another way. And it seems as though Ganner Rysode is now taking that to heart, that his way wasn't correct. Maybe by learning from some of the other Jedi who think differently from myself, I can learn to be something more. Hopefully that's what Jason takes from it. I love that. Learning to be something more. It's like you don't have to completely change who you are, Ganner Rysode or Jason Solo, but you can learn something and build upon yourself and build upon the knowledge that you already have and evolve where you need to. I love that. Well thought out, man. Matt, the last question I have for you is about Corrin Horn. <laughs> we talked about Stackpole. Corrin is his OP. He loves the guy. At the end of the book, we end up with Corrin going into exile. Why do you think Luke and the New Republic leadership allow Corrin to take the blame for Ithor's destruction? That's a really good question. <clears throat> in the assault- and, and Corrin himself, Corrin allows himself to take the blame. He tells Luke, he comes up you have to put this on me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. In the in the in the Song of Ice and Fire books that that we cover on our podcast Davos Fingers, there's a moment where they're advocating killing a child in order to maybe save the lives of others. And one of the characters asks, "What is the life of one child?" And the other character answers with one word: "Everything." Um, and uh, you think about that here with Corin. Well, what is the life of one? You know, Jedi Knight slash until now Colonel in the New Republic military. And you wonder, well, could it be everything? Uh, But that's what leaders have to do. They have to make hard decisions. And you do have to weigh, is this worth allowing him to do that in order to save face both on the New Republic front and on the Jedi front? I feel like it's an awfully big stretch for Phalia to blame Corrin in the first place. You guys, well, at least all the military agreed for Corrin to go about with this little duel idea. Um, But what was Corrin supposed to do? He abided by the rules of the duel. He won the duel. So the fact that the Vong didn't play fair isn't exactly uh, a fault that rests completely on Corrin's shoulders, you know. But I do think that the New Republic leadership is floundering right now. They don't know what to do. They're seeing that this is bigger than they ever thought. And to just keep moving forward without having the population of the galaxy at large completely turn on them, they need to be able to blame somebody. And Corrin's taken that. And it is kind of sad that Luke comes around to it and traced as well. But here we are. That's the only part of that that doesn't sit well with me is that Luke agrees to it. Mm -hmm. I just don't think Luke would do that. 
if I'm being honest. That doesn't feel like something Luke would do. Considering how many times Luke has shown the compassion to take fallen Jedi back. Kip Duran, for example. Even, Kip Duran, even in this book, Deshara Kor mm-hmm. takes her back to allow Corrin to shoulder all the blame for the destruction of Ithor. Luke was there. The New Republic military was there. Borskvalia himself was helping to crew the Raw Roost. Mm-hmm. They saw that it was the Yuzhan Vong that deployed this biological weapon that destroyed the planet. If you want somebody to blame, you have an easy scapegoat out there. This is why we have to team up because the Yuzhan Vong are killing us. And they're ruthless. You know, I recently, this is how Stackpole writes Luke. It's an interesting thing that I'm just starting to realize as I've been reading the expanded universe novels, you know, more carefully over the past two or three years. I recently read I, Jedi, and I don't know how well you remember that one, Aaron, but Luke comes off as very, he's, he's undergoing a lot of dissonance about the Jedi Order and his role in the Force. This is kind of where that starts. And of course, Corrin Horn, he, he almost comes off as bumbling and like Corrin needs to set Luke straight throughout the book. And Corrin is constantly like setting Luke straight. No, this is the way, this is the way. And Luke's like, oh yeah, you're right, man. Oh gosh, I didn't even realize it because Corrin is Michael Stackpole's, you know, guy. Um, and, and you, you, you feel that in this book, too, of Luke's trying to articulate the way that the Jedi should act, but he's still having trouble doing with doing it. Um, he's a little more confident than he is in I, Jedi, but still there's a little bit of uncertainty coming from Luke, a little bit of uncertainty of how to handle the Jedi Order. Um, so you see that. I The only thing I could think of as to you you know your response your statement which i agree with of this doesn't feel like luke is maybe he feels like corin needs this time away uh and so he's allowing him to do it in order to give corin that introspection time but my response to my own suggestion there is but why does you ha- why do you have to throw him under the bus in front of the whole galaxy to do that you know so yeah, you can just In say he I needs agree. to go rest from being stabbed through the gut. Yeah, he's going back to and Corelli almost to dying. Recover. Yeah. <laughs> well, Matt, I guess it's almost time to go. But first, I wanted to share a message that the show received about the Anakin Padme romance that I was talking about with Thomas and Crystal of the TK331 podcast back when we had our listener question show in April. Based on what we see on screen in the prequels, the three of us did not understand what Padme saw in Anakin. (laughs) Well, listener Joe Abelli has a theory about that. Matt, would you please read the message that Joe sent? You bet. Joe says, this is entirely headcanon, but it's my belief that Padme was never truly even in love with Anakin. We all know that Anakin was incredibly powerful with the Force and not very good at controlling his emotions. I believe that he unintentionally used the Force to manipulate Padme into loving him, which is why their relationship seems odd in the prequels in the Clone Wars TV show. I don't think he did it on purpose necessarily, 
but his wishing and hoping for her to love him could have somehow manifested those feelings. Perhaps Palpatine also had some sort of influence there. That could also make sense considering that Anakin's attachment to Padme was ultimately what pushed him to the dark side in the end. Thank you for the email, Joe. I appreciate the theory, and I decided to forward it to Crystal and Thomas to get their thoughts. Crystal says, quote, I've heard this theory before, but I disagree for two reasons. One, I think it would take someone much more powerful than Anakin or Palpatine, someone unreasonably powerful, universe-breaking powerful, to maintain that kind of intentional or unintentional control for so long. During the Clone Wars, Anakin and Padme are apart for long periods of time. I can't help but feel that the effect would diminish during those periods. Two, I don't love what this theory says about either Anakin or Padme. Even if it's unintentional on Anakin's part, it feels very manipulative, even abusive. From Padme's side, it makes her seem weak-willed. She certainly has flaws, and she clearly doesn't resist Anakin romantically, but I would rather it be her choice even if it's a bad one, than to have that choice taken away from her, unquote. Now, Thomas says, quote, In 1977, Obi-Wan Kenobi said that the Force can have a strong influence on the weak-minded. To me, Padme is anything but weak-minded, especially during Attack of the Clones. If Anakin or Palpatine was trying to force her to do something intentionally, I think they would just fail and I don't see it happening unintentionally. Also, I agree with Crystal. It feels kind of icky. Unquote. Matt, do you have an opinion on the way the Anakin-Padme relationship is portrayed on screen and Joe's theory about it? <laughs> I'm completely in your corner of what does this wonderful, wonderfully built character in Padme Amidala, who's so strong-willed and so confident and so self-possessed. What does she see in Anakin Skywalker? Oh my goodness. Um, and a lot of that doesn't feel like it makes sense, especially in the way the dialogue is presented between the two of them, as we've talked about. Uh, but um, I, I agree with everything being said. I find it difficult that the to believe that the strong-willed Padme Amidala could be influenced in that way. I get what, what Joe's saying about Anakin, maybe not doing it intentionally uh, and, and just someone of that ability being, you know, manifesting the force in, in, in a way that he doesn't even completely understand. But I agree with everything that was presented. I, I think that even if, if it wasn't written to my liking by George Lucas, um, I think that, that, that there was some real feelings to Padme, to Padme uh, for Anakin and obviously, um, that, that went where it did, but so I agree in other words with you. Yeah, Joe, I just don't think that's the way the force works. And I think it's more interesting in a story when the characters have agency, even if I don't like the way the romance works, I think it's more interesting if it's Padme's choice to fall in love with Anakin. Just like I think it's more interesting that it was Anakin's own choices that led him to fall to the dark side rather than just someone saying, well, Palpatine manipulated him. That's what caused him to fall. Because Anakin still had to make choices along the way. Thank you for sharing your headcanon with us, Joe. 
I love when people share their theories with us here on the show. And listener, if you disagree with anything that I say, or if you want to share your opinions, or if you have a question, you can send me an email. I'll read it on the show. The email address is swlegendslounge at gmail.com, or you can send a tweet at legendslounge1. Now it's time to wrap up, Matt. Thank you again for joining me today and for joining us on our journey through the New Jedi Order. If the listeners would like to check out the Davos Fingers podcast or they would like to contact you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, You can find Davos Fingers on Twitter at Davos Fingers. Um, We're also on Facebook. Uh, If you would like to check out our Patreon content, you can look at patreon.com slash Davos Fingers. We'd love to have you along for the ride. Uh, You can also find the podcast itself on Apple Podcasts or kind of wherever you consume your podcasts. If you want to talk to me personally about whatever, my Twitter handle is at Thackalanche. That's T as in Tom, H-A-C-K-A-Lanche, like Avalanche. And I'd love to chit-chat with you. Coming up on the next episode, I'll be joined by my good friend K2, who, like two of the other co-hosts on this venture, Kat and Scott, is reading this series for the very first time. She and I will be discussing Agents of Chaos 1, Heroes Trial, by James Luceno. You can look forward to that episode coming up on May 26th. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. I'm Aaron Motes. May the Force be with you. And remember, there's always a bit of truth in Legends. Legends.